Our scripture reading this morning comes from John chapter 6, verses 52 through 69. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life, but there are some of you who do not believe, for Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. This is the word of the Lord. Well, um, good morning again. If you're new to North Cross, uh, physically or virtually, welcome uh, I invite you to email us if you're not here in person, info at northcrosschurch.com. If you're here in person, there's a welcome table out in the lobby for your, we'd love for you to do that and grab a mug if you'd like. Um, and those here again, we're really glad to be with you and uh, to be together and to worship the Lord in a moment like this. And I do want to acknowledge the moment that we're in, and so I'm going to take yet another break from Ephesians. We're on every other week pattern at this point. I hope to get back to every other week, or every week, excuse me, in June. But I do just want to acknowledge that this is, uh, what the church is going through is tough. And I want to safely assume that everyone in this room is in different places, maybe simultaneously with the news in our hearts. And, uh, and so we're hurt, uh, we're reeling, we're angry or sad. Maybe you're excited for me, maybe you're excited for the future for North Cross. Maybe you're shocked or indifferent. Maybe you're like, a couple of those things all at once in this room, and, uh, and I feel that. And I also want to say the best thing that I know to do in this moment is not, um, has nothing really to do with me, and it's just taking all those emotions of our hearts and, and our eyes and turning them to Jesus. That's what we're going to do. We're going to look to him, and I can think of no better way than to preach a sermon that I wrote a few years ago, and because it focuses on the life and the ministry of Jesus and our lives and his people, the church. And so I need to preach this and hear this, and it's my hope that you um, will feel the same that you've needed to hear this as well. Our passage this morning is from John chapter 6, 
and it picks up the story the morning after. Jesus has performed miracles of healing. He's fed 5,000 men, let alone women and children, prayed for hours, and then he has walked across the water in the evening. Now, after sunrise, he's back in Capernaum on the Sea of Galilee, and a huge crowd has followed him across that lake to the other side, and where Jesus is teaching them about who he is. He is the bread of life. But before we look this morning at that event, uh, let's pray together. Father, um, again, you've got ways and words and a spirit that works and works in ways that are mysterious as the wind, where it comes from and where it goes, how it blows, we don't know. But I pray once again that you would use these words to comfort, perhaps to heal, and really would they be your hands and feet to meet us where we are? Would we hear your truth and your love Would you meet us by them? And would you, Jesus, be at the center of our sight, high and lifted up, more believable and beautiful to the eyes of our hearts, we pray. In your name, amen. I'll never forget uh, my head soccer coaching debut. (laughs) As many of you know, I played soccer in college, so I still do, think I'm a big deal, and my chance to show off my skills and knowledge happened uh, when I had some young children, four-year-olds, that I was going to head coach for the first time, and really I thought they're going to be teachable, they're going to love what I'm offering, and the the parents are going to coo and adore over what I do on the soccer field, and it was a Saturday morning, and my wife and I did what many of you and many people our age in the suburban Lake Norman area have done. We woke up at 7.30 a.m. on a Saturday (laughs) Uh, we, f- we filled a rolling cooler full of tropical punch of Capri Suns and ice and uh, bags of goldfish, crackers, and then, um, just gets more relatable, we slid this cooler into our van, our maroon Honda Odyssey minivan, and with a cl- few collapsible chairs, and we drove for 10 minutes listening to screechy children's music until we arrived at a football field covered with pop-up goals and four- to six-year-old children and their parents. Anyway, I found myself by myself. I was the assistant coach, but my head coach was out of town. And I was in charge of a handful of four-year-old boys and girls, trying to teach them the rules of soccer mid-game. And it was just semi-organized chaos, really, as you can imagine. And to make things worse, when we finally started to play, our team was just terrible. It's just the truth. Um, We got shelled. Goal after goal rained down upon this wobbly, quick-to-cry Children, U5 soccer, like many things in life, is a game of momentum. And so we were on the losing side of that momentum battle. It did not help that when we stared forward, Goliath was on the other team, a six-year-old who was in kindergarten against all these four-year-olds. So when we subbed and during breaks, we took a break after every goal, so there's a lot of breaks that happened. I tried to huddle up my preschool squad and coach them through some soccer strategy. You know, like technique pointers, encouragement, whatever I could really think to say at that moment. But slowly over time, my seven-person squad dwindled. It started with Claire, who refused to take the field at all. Then Hudson disappeared after a substitution and never came back. 
And then another child left early to go to his sister's, older sister's soccer game, and I lost him too. And so I crouched down with the four remaining players out of seven. I had, they, they were left, and they looked so tired, and they looked about to cry, and the score was way against us in the double digits by now. And I just tried pure positivity in that moment. I reached down, I put on a big smile, and I made myself say, you're doing great. And then I said, asked them two questions. Are we having fun? And do you think we're going to score a goal? And there was just dead silence. You could hear the wind whistle and the dandelions. And um, then I looked up and I saw a small nod and then a few fearful stares. And then one child looked at me with big eyes and said, no. (laughs) No, we are not having fun. And no, we will not score goals today. (laughs) Our under five years old soccer team had given up all hope on fun and goals that morning. And while the place and time and certainly the age of the disciples is very different, the motion of the scene in chapter six of of John's gospel is actually similar to that U5 soccer morning. The crowd around Jesus is so upset. Uh, Jesus' team, his disciples, are despairing in their fatigue and their frustration and their fickleness. They just start to drop off until only 12 of them are sort of reluctantly but still hopefully left in Jesus' squad. And perhaps you can relate to these 12, whether you're exploring Christianity for the first time or actively trying to follow Jesus. Um, You know, sometimes Jesus says things or doesn't say things that hurt. Sometimes Jesus' church doesn't do or does do things that feel like my U5 soccer game. The momentum feels like it's shifting, and we're beyond coachable strategies here. And this is exactly why we need to return to this passage of Scripture again and again and again. You see, in John chapter 6, verses 52 through 69, we're reminded about Jesus. You and I could try to leave the field— We could try to find another someone to follow, but there's no other person who has the words of eternal life. There's no one else who has the eternal, the words of eternal life. And so John chapter six tells the story of this powerful reminder by describing the give and take of Jesus' hard but true words. And his audience's very mixed response and reception of those hard words. And so our outline that's going to be projected behind me, hopefully, is going to address two questions that are very basic to our passage. First, what is Jesus saying that's so hard and offensive? Second, uh, that was verses 52 through 65. Second, verses 66 through 69. How do we respond to Jesus and his hard sayings? That's what we're looking at. As usual, we're going to look first at what Jesus is saying and why it's so hard and potentially offensive. The what in verse 52 through 65. The crowd and the disciples get at the heart of our questions in verse 52, don't they? And then verses 60 and 61. But let's start with verse 52. This question summarizes what the crowd has heard Jesus saying for roughly the last 26 verses. And it's this. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? That's their takeaway. Jesus has called himself the bread of life, in the verses before, and now in verses 53 through 58, Jesus is doubling down. He's doubling down on what he said to a, to a packed, likely packed synagogue with families spilling out into the aisles and out the door. 
Jesus tells them, eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, or else you have no life in you. To understand what Jesus is meaning here, we have to begin with the least weird thing that Jesus just said. And it's still pretty offensive. <laughs> A little bit off-putting. Jesus is speaking about himself in the third person, and he understands himself to be the Son of Man. A title used by the Old Testament prophet Daniel to refer to God Almighty. So he's saying, I'm God. And we also need to know that eating human flesh and drinking human blood was explicitly forbidden by the Old Testament, especially, most, probably most forcefully in Leviticus chapter 17, verses 10 through 11, because the life belongs to God. And finally, when Jesus says life, that word, in this verse, those following, uh, and those following this verse, he's referring to spiritual life. He's using this Greek word zoe, and zoe refers to spiritual or eternal life, as opposed to the Greek word bios, which we get biology from, which refers to physical life. You see, Jesus is on the heels of a 24-hour sensational tour of miracles of healing and feeding and water walking. And Jesus is going out of his way to ratchet up the scandal level. But it's not because he's a first-century shock jock who wants a following. It's because he wants to name for us and cast into the light the potential objections that we have to following and believing in Jesus. And so Jesus is not going to back down from saying who he is and how our satisfaction gets met in him. Our deepest hungers, our deepest thirsts are met in Jesus, and they're met in his flesh, in the physical and historical here and now. And so this is just extremely scandalous still for many of us in this room. If you're feeling especially cynical and skeptical today, maybe for many reasons, you have to admit at least that Jesus' honesty is a bit disarming. He's forthright about Christianity, and that's profoundly attractive, isn't it? Jesus is on purpose promising something huge. He's saying that he can give us eternal life, zoe, a phrase in the Bible that doesn't just refer to sort of happily ever after life and heaven. It also refers to, as big as that is, it also refers to a present tense sense of eternal satisfaction and fellowship with God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. And so in verses 58, 56 through 58, they're telling us that Jesus gives us this eternal satisfaction, this real-life rest, and real-life connection with him and God as we open wide our hearts and bring our deepest hungers and thirsts to Jesus. By approaching Jesus and believing in him, we can get Jesus' fullness and nibbles and gulps. But Jesus is the opposite of a slicked-back slicked hair, used car salesman trying to get us into a clunker of a faith. And I want you to hear that. In verse 54, he describes our faith with the Greek word for eat. This is how you're supposed to have faith, trogon. That means to chomp down, to gobble up, to chew with loud lip smacks and gross animal grunting. That's how evocative that word is. And this is the word that Jesus is choosing to show us the mileage, to show us the dents, 
to show us the full previous accident report for us to see eyes wide open see how very strange all of this is. The all-knowing, all-powerful, all-present God of the universe had a known human name. And he had a physical address. That the eternal God became mortal flesh and blood, a human being, even Jesus of Nazareth. And he's using graphic physical language here that informs our faith And he says, you know God best by his still permanent residence in the body and person of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And so the scandal of Jesus seeming to promote literal physical cannibalism, that's what it sounds like, doesn't it? Just eat and drink someone's body and blood. This is actually a deeper offense in some ways for those who take God seriously. In the words of theologian Leslie Newbegin, The scandal is that Jesus in his concrete humanity, his flesh and blood, is the actual presence of the life of God in the midst of contingent, that is, conditional or highly changeable happenings of human history. Let me put that a much more simple way. That's a really brilliant thought, but I'm going to put it very simply. God puts his eternal life in a flesh and blood Jesus, right? In a human historical moment, first century Israel with all of those fragile body parts and with all of those changeable circumstances at play. And so perhaps we can begin to see how Christians can believe and take seriously practices like communion or the Lord's Supper, right? Where Jesus Christ is spiritually present in physical bread and physical wine and that we can physically eat and drink Jesus. At least the elements that represent him. And I mean, if the last 24 hours with Jesus taught the disciples anything at all, it was just how possible something like communion would be, right? In the words of Martin Luther, Jesus is, after all, good at miracles. <laughs> I like that line. He's, after all, good at miracles. So that's not, above, that's not below his pay grade. So please notice that Jesus, again, doesn't apologize or he doesn't walk back his teachings Instead of verses 63 through 65, Jesus clarifies, quote-unquote, our confusion by explaining, yeah, yeah, I'm not just a historical flesh and body. I'm also equally God in eternal spirit. Just ratcheting it up. And so he's saying our deepest hungers and our deepest thirsts are met in Jesus. In his eternal spirit, the spiritual and divine always and forever. And again, this is so scandalous for so many of us. For instance, verse 64 tells us that Jesus knew from the beginning, a reference to eternity. So Jesus knew from eternity who those were who would not believe. And then Jesus tells us how he knew. It's the spirit who gives life, verse 63 And no one can come to me unless it's granted to him by the Father, verse 65. That is, Jesus is saying here that in the flesh, he's also simultaneously one with God the Holy Spirit who gives life and one with God the Father who grants people to come to Jesus. And verse 65 is so weighty and difficult because it's talking about how salvation works. And the emphasis is on divine sovereignty in the very midst of human responsibility. And God the Father must give humans the ability to choose him. 
And I can talk about this forever, right? This is giant. Uh, some people call this things predestination. And I'm just not going to try to explain the theology behind that right now. Uh, for that, you can look to John chapter 6 and verses 37 and 43 through 44. Or you can kind of adult Sunday school. We've been talking about it, I don't know, for about eight weeks. Um, or I'm happy to talk about it another time over coffee. Instead, I'd like to emphasize what I think verse 65 is trying to say as a takeaway. And I'd like to do that by sharing a story from one of my graduate school professors named Sharon Hirsch. She was a professor of counseling for me. If you've met or known Sharon for any a brief period of time, and she said this in public and print, and she's very open about it, she is an alcoholic, a recovering alcoholic. She's been in and out of counseling. She's been in and out of hospitals. She's been in and out of rehabilitation for drinking. And one of her first times in treatment, she tells the story of how she was told that she needed to look in a mirror and repeat every day, Sharon, I forgive you. Sharon, I forgive you. At first, she had so much self-hatred, so much contempt for herself that she couldn't look herself in the mirror. She couldn't even lift her eyes to the glass. Over the course of the week that she was in this inpatient rehabilitation, the compassion, the self-acceptance grew to the point where she could look at herself in the mirror. But she found when she tried to say, Sharon, I forgive you, she couldn't. She had to say, Sharon, you don't have the power to forgive yourself. That's not your power. You don't have the power to forgive yourself. Listen to the way Sharon Hirsch describes why she said this in her book, The Last Addiction. I knew that family and friends would forgive me, but there were things they didn't know about or understand. I knew I needed something more, something other than myself. You see, Sharon knew that she needed a God who does the full work of forgiveness outside of her and for her. Jesus, whose wounds on a cross heal our deepest wounds below the very surface of who we are. Jesus, whose fullness of divine life can begin to fill our hungering emptiness. And later in the last addiction, Sharon returns that image of looking into the mirror at herself and her body, and she writes this. I can stare in the mirror and see desperation's hideous reflection. Yet how sad if I cannot also see the reflection of the most holy. We can value ourselves only by grasping how much God loves us. We can value ourselves by only by grasping how much God loves us. You see, there's this humility that comes from giving God the power over our forgiveness. You know, whether it's too much alcohol or too much work, whether it's too little self-control or too little benefit of the doubt for other people, there's a humility to let God say who you are who you are to him, who you are to the world. And once you do that, it's like giving grace over a feast of eternal satisfaction. It's the beginning of a feast of eternal satisfaction. And really Sharon's story with his hard-to-one truths leads us to verses 66 through 69. And our second and final question, and second and final point, how do we respond to Jesus? So what? So what? Who cares? Where do I fit in the story, Said Verse 66 makes it so clear that many, the vast majority of the disciples, found what Jesus was saying way too hard, way too uncomfortable to bear with, and so they just laughed. They left him. What's this about having to digest a God with a flesh on his bones? Um, yuck. 
amount. What's this about desiring God because he already desires to be with us? Um, weak. But Jesus does not and did not do guilt trips. The many, many folks like that, he's just comfortable with questions. He's just comfortable. He stomachs disagreement, even personal disagreement. And so Jesus turns to the remaining 12 disciples, and he asks them such an important question. Do you want to go away as well? Do you want to go away as well? And actually, a better translation, according to the original Greek grammar, might be, you don't want to leave too, do you? Do you see how personal Jesus is here? He cares enough to risk a question about Christianity, the very, very foundation of what we believe, that could receive rejection. And then, as usual, Simon Peter leads the way for us. He leads the way for the 12 disciples. He leads the way for you and for me and our faith this morning. He says, Lord, to whom shall I go? You have the words of eternal life. You are the Holy One of Israel. And Peter's saying faith looks like continuing to bring Jesus in person, to bring him your emptiness, to bring him your needs, to bring him your inabilities, and to say, I can't. You can. So we can. I can't. You can. So we can. Singer, songwriter, and author Michael Card puts it this way. He describes the faith confession as a loyal despair, perhaps spoken through clenched teeth. Card adds, each one of us, if we follow Jesus closely, that is biblically, will come to the same moment Peter came to. You will see Jesus in a new and unexpected way, in a light you never dreamed of or wanted to see him in, maybe. This is precisely the point where real discipleship begins. And it makes me think of my own journey for personal satisfaction for, to fill what the writer Frederick Buechner calls that empty place of our deepest desiring. It's amazing. The first way I found that place, that something that touched that deepest desiring was in high school while reading the Tao Te Ching and listening to Bob Dylan cassette tapes. <laughs> the, taste, the way that I tasted that peace led me into college, and I studied the East Asian religious contemplation for a season of my life. And I spent a summer meditating and doing visualizations. But it was so difficult. And really, at the end of the day, it was so much me saying who I was by my mental control or my behaviors. It was me trying to construct an identity for the watching world around me. And so Peter's faith confession makes me think of the way the fall of my sophomore year in college, I first read Jesus' words of eternal life. In John, and I began to take the Bible and Jesus and Christianity relentlessly. And it was the very hardest things that Jesus says in passages like this that I, as a new Christian, continue, did, and now continue as a pastor to find the most convincing. The scandal that Jesus is that particular, that God became a flesh and blood body, makes it stand out as historical and true. And the scandal of the Christianity's grace that Jesus' spirit offers forgiveness before we get our eternal and mental and behavioral acts together, that it's prepaid forgiveness, that makes it stand out as life um, just giving. 
that God absolutely, no question, no doubt, 100% wants to be with you and me is life-changing. And it's my experience that what Peter says is true and he feels right. That Jesus' truth and love is at the very least the best of what's around. But I'm going to end with a letter. I'd like to end with um, a letter that I read recently that gets at the real-life power of Jesus' words of eternal life. Words that I believe can apply to difficult Sundays like this one. One of my favorite authors, Kate D. Camillo, she's a children's book author, wrote a letter in Time magazine to another children's book author, Matt De La Pena. And Matt had publicly asked Kate a question. How honest can an author be with an auditorium full of elementary school children? <laughs> it's a great question. How honest can an author be to an elementary school auditorium full of children? Especially given, this question is so good, especially given what we've been going through. What happened in Uvalde, Texas this week, and perhaps how fragile our North Cross hearts feel right now. And Kate D. Camillo's reply is just really important for us to hear. Kate begins by asking Matt if he's ever asked an auditorium full of school-aged children if they know and love E.B. White's Charlotte's Web. And Kate answers her own question by describing how she has always seen almost all of the hands go up when she asked this question, and then most of those hands just stay in the air for a really, really long time. And then Katie Camillo describes why her childhood best friend read Charlotte's Web over and over and over again. She would start it, she'd finish it, and then she'd start it back again. And so as adults, recently, Kate asked her best friend why she did that. Why reread Charlotte's Web like that? And she said, did you think it would, if you read it again, things would turn out differently or better? That Charlotte wouldn't die? And her childhood best friend replied, no, it wasn't that. I kept reading it because I wanted it. I didn't, I didn't keep reading it because I, didn't, I wanted it to turn out differently or thought it would turn out differently. But because I kept reading it because I knew for a fact that it wasn't going to turn out differently. I knew that a terrible thing was going to happen, and I also knew that, that I was going to be okay somehow. I thought that I couldn't bear it, but when I read it again, it was also beautiful. And I found out that I could bear it. And that's what the story told me, that what I needed to hear, that I could bear it somehow. In the same letter, Kate D. Camillo goes on to talk about a time when she was in South Dakota, in an auditorium for an elementary school uh, assembly that was packed, 900 kids. And there, during a time of question and answer, a boy asked Kate if she thought she would have been a writer if she hadn't been sick all the time as a kid and if her dad hadn't left. And Kate chose to reply to this boy with honesty, I think there's a good chance that I, would be st- I wouldn't be standing here in front of you as a writer if those things hadn't happened in my life. And minutes later, another girl waved her hand into the air furiously, and Kate called on her, and she said this to Kate, it turns out that in the end, you were stronger than you thought you were. Then Kate DiCamillo describes standing by the door as all 900 of those children filed out of the assembly, out of the auditorium, and Kate stood there in sort of the stream of steady chatter, and she risked talking to the people that turned and courage and made eye contact and said something to her. 
And this is what she says. One boy, skinny-legged and blonde-haired, grabbed my hand and said, I'm here in South Dakota, and my dad's gone. He flung his free hand out in the direction of the ground. And he said, he's there, and I'm with my mom here. And I thought I might not be okay. But you said today that you're okay. And so I think I will be okay too. What could I do? I tried not to cry. And I kept hold of his hand, and I looked him in the eye, and I said, you will be okay. You are okay. It's just like what the other kids said. You're stronger than, I, than you know. You're stronger than you know. God knows. God knows you and I are hungry. We're thirsty. And we're scared of the dark and the world sometimes. But it'll be okay. Because Jesus is love. Because Jesus' eternal life-giving presence is with us. You and I are stronger than we know. God loves us that much. So much he became like us. He became an elementary school-aged child. So much that he gave himself up on a cross to feed us in our hunger. That's the bread of life. And so Jesus says, take, eat. This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Would you pray with me one more time?